Are you a vocal coach who has been avoiding vocal acoustics? Maybe you just aren't sure how it applies to the work you do, or maybe you've tried really hard but there just seems too much to get to grips with. Well, this week I am joined by Ken Bozeman, who is here to help. Ken taught at Lawrence University for 42 years and received two awards for excellence in teaching. He is the chair of the editorial board of the Journal of Singing and is the author of the acoustic pedagogy books Practical Vocal Acoustics, Pedagogic Applications for Teachers and Singers and Kinesthetic Voice Pedagogy 2, Motivating Acoustic Efficiency. Ken continues to be in demand to present at conferences and is here to help us understand why acoustics is important in our teaching, what we need to know, provide some definitions and to give some examples of how we can apply this in the studio. Oh, deep breaths. Here we go. Ken Bozeman, as much as I have been looking forward to chatting with you, I've also been rather nervous because the phrase vocal acoustics is one that can instigate fear and confusion in many of us voice teachers. What's it like having your brain knowing that you're quite solid on the understanding of vocal acoustics? Oh my, well, I mean, since it was gradually accumulated, I don't find it that, that difficult, but I appreciate the fact that it usually takes people several passes before they begin to catch on. But eventually, really, it's just about shaping things for vowels and for overall timbre and, and knowing what good choices sound like and feel like from the inside. That's, there's something called procedural knowledge. There's declarative knowledge, which is the hard facts, you know, the objective hard facts of acoustics. And it's useful to know them. But what a singer really needs to know is procedural knowledge, which is what it feels like to do it well. And, the, and that's sensorial knowledge. And that's where singers live and it's where teachers it's what teachers are trying to guide the singers toward, you know, what it feels like. So in my teaching, I don't refer to the, the dry facts of acoustics often at all. I, I refer to what it feels like when they're doing a good, you know, making a good shape for a particular vowel on a particular pitch for a particular genre. And that's what teachers do all the time. The, the, the acoustical knowledge has informed the output, what we call the output targets, the sounds and sensations you're going for are output targets. And acoustic uh, information has informed that with much greater specificity so that we're much, I, I, my efficiency in the studio grew logarithmically over time such that uh, now I, I can you know, make more targeted suggestions, but it's still taught like it always has been largely, coaching the singer towards these sensations and sounds. Before you started studying vocal acoustics or getting to grips with it yourself, what sort of answers were you searching for in your studio? So, you know, to be completely honest, my search started because of my own personal struggles, vocal struggles. I was a young, you know, untrained singer when I went to college. I had what was going to be a tenor instrument, but I didn't have, I couldn't sustain the tenor range. Um, you know, I had the typical young untrained voice range, 
uh, that went about from C on the bottom to F4 on the top. And I had to figure out how to sing above F4 uh, and then how to sustain comfortably the tessitura pretty much from about B flat 3 to B flat 4, which is where tenors live a lot. And that was not easy. I had to figure that out. And so um, so my journey was learning. And usually, I mean, the sort of the, the upper passaggio of tenor voices lies in that area from... If I if I widen it a little bit, the areas that of struggle would be from B flat three to about G four. It's narrower than that, but that's the, the period where you've got to really sort it out in order to sing comfortably above the G four and even to live in that area for long. So that's what started me on the journey. Then, of course, as a teacher, I needed to know how to do that for my students, and also I needed how to know how to do the the higher passaggio that treble voices face. Treble voices face two major passaggi, that lower one in their lower middle voice, where their voice often will try to transition from mode one to mode two or chest to head voice, and the higher one, an octave higher, uh, roughly about B4 to F5, up in that area somewhere, uh, there's the transition up there. So I needed to understand how to teach that and what, what to think about that. So the acoustic information has really helped me sort very clearly how to do that or what to do, the acoustic information sort of what to do, and then studio exploration with that information helped me sort how to do it, the sensorial procedural part of, of that knowledge. So why do we need to know it? I know you've kind of explained it from your perspective and your own experience, but for some of us voice teachers who may have been hesitant to get going because it just feels like a whole minefield of words and science, right. Why do we need it? Well, um, you know, you, you don't have to go any deeper. You, you only need to go as deep as you care to go as far as the, the declarative knowledge part, the, the sciencey part of it. I think it's very difficult for a teacher to teach someone how to sing if they don't know how to sing themselves. And if you notice, like, can you teach someone how to ride a bicycle if you can't ride a bicycle? Now, what you're trying to coach, you can, it's possible, it's harder. But what you're trying to coach is to help them get in a situation that, where they can begin to feel the balance of riding that bicycle and that feeling which is sensorial and hard to describe with words that's what they need to be able to ride that bicycle now if you know what it feels like because you've sung well then you have to figure out okay everybody coming to ride that bicycle is coming from a different set of physical aptitudes and body weight sizes and so forth and so on. And you've got to figure out a variety of ways of coaching them to find that same feeling. So there's variety towards a similar goal of balance on that bicycle. Same with singing. Voice in the wild, in nature, is programmed, it evolved for the purpose of expressing feelings. It is activated by the impulse to express emotion, feelings before language ever occurred, before we even evolved language, and before we learned language as individual beings, we express feelings with this thing. That is its deepest level programming. Janice Chapman refers to that as primal sound. Whether or not that's the right term, some people argue about, but I, I agree with the basic idea that she's putting out there. That's, and so that's actually the core of my pedagogy. I use, uh, affect, I use the word affect, meaning you know, expressive sounds uh, as my primary tool for stimulating the responses that I want. But 
If that's the case, then language came along. Now, I love language. You, know, you can't be a singer and not love language. Language has given us great specificity in trying to explain why we're feeling what we're feeling and what we're feeling and so forth. So I love language, but language is actually the problem. Why do I say that? Because we get our output targets for language, what it sounds like and what it feels like, from a fairly narrow part of our range. And then we try to make those sounds and those sensations stay the same up and down the range. And they cannot. It's impossible. And yet we want our audience to believe that we're doing that. Okay? Especially depending on the genre. Some genres are more or less speech-like. But every genre wants intelligible language, pretty much. So acoustic pedagogy can explain exactly why timbre and vowels necessarily migrate across range, meaning gradually change and change a little bit more than gradually at certain points along the way. And it can explain to you why and where all those things happen. It can tell you what the auditory targets are going to probably sound like to you with a perceptual piece so that you know, oh, on this pitch, your this file is going to seem a little bit more like this. But it can also tell you how you might even feel the components of the acoustics of the sound so the sensation, what is called somatosense, which is just the way the body feels sound, uh, acoustic pedagogy combined with psychoacoustics can tell you what it's probably going to feel like, what it's probably going to sound like, what it's probably going to feel like when you're doing that vowel on that pitch. Now you have more appropriate output targets. Ingo Tietze, a very well-known voice scientist, wrote an article for the Journal of Singing uh, in 2021 in which he made this uh, statement. He said, these are fancy words, but I'll translate them. Synergistic biological systems, those were the fancy words, which just means interactive living things like us, tend to self-organize for efficiency. Great. If, big if, given appropriate output targets, and if they have sufficient flexibility to explore solutions for those output targets. What does that mean if you're trying to do something that's appropriate for a human voice, right? That the voice can potentially do, and you aren't bound up by whatever your personal history is so inhibited that you can't, you don't have enough flexibility to explore options. So if you have enough flexibility to explore options, your body's going to tend to move towards efficiency. I add this to that. How does the body know when it's found efficiency? Why does it seek efficiency, pleasure, and ease? Oh, that feels better. I think I'll do it that way. Why would I do it the way that doesn't feel as good, right? The body the body's trying to find the most pleasurable way to solve appropriate output targets. And when it finds them, that's efficiency. And it like the body likes that. So it keeps trying to go there again. That's his, that's to me that, that, that uh, I think is a brilliant paper and a brilliant notion that he's observed in nature. Think about animals, howlers, buglers. Do you think they do that because it hurts? No. It's somehow self-soothing. And so uh, to me, that's crucial to our pedagogy. It doesn't feel good. It's not, it's not efficient. We could say it's not right. Okay. 
Uh, you may even, you know, there, now there are some fringe expressions that we might briefly do in extremis. Like, you know, my child is about to be hit by a car. I might scream bloody murder, not worried about whether it feels good or not. I'm trying to save my child. But in general, things that we do performatively, if we're not doing, you know, those, those kinds of performances where people hurt themselves on purpose, I'm not <laughs> into that. Uh, we are trying to express various human feelings in ways that we can sustain and do over and over and over again without ruining the instrument that we're using to, to do it. So it's got to feel easy. Easy feels good. Easy and good are almost the same thing as long as you're getting the output target that you're going for and expressing a satisfying expression at the same time. As an extension of that then, at what point is it appropriate for us to target the vocal acoustic side of singing in a lesson compared to whether we work on something like muscle tenseness reduction or registration. Is there a better order for things? There's, you know, probably, well, there's, you know, you can come at a problem from different angles and make some headway from any of those angles. In my own work, I have found the acoustic path to solve indirectly many of those other problems. But but I will use, I will approach it depending on the situation. I will go from other paths as well. Uh, and I, I, there's not a one size fits all exactly. For I'll give you an example. I teach something called the chiaroscuro whisper, which is an adapted whisper. It's not the typical whisper. The typical whisper is a bit mouthy and spread and, and high frequency dominant. <laughs> You know, at least some some of us whisper that way. The chiaroscuro whisper is a little bit sketchy. Okay, it's a little bit, you know, it's kind of uh, I used to say sort of like naughty mischief. You know, but it's like and there are very specific pitch targets for each of those vowels when it's well done. Surprisingly, regardless of voice type and body type, same targets will work for everybody. That's uh, a really shocking development that I didn't expect. But at any rate, when I do that, and I get that target right with, with, with pleasure, with pleasure and ease and expression, I actually have shaped those vowels optimally for any pitches that don't require active vowel modification. Active vowel modification means shape changing from the speed from the ideal speech shapes, from those chiaroscuro whisper shapes. But I can use chiaroscuro whisper even to do active vowel modification. Here's how that works. So I have pitch targets for each vowel, like for the E. Are you able to hear? There are YouTube, I've got YouTube stuff up on this. And the, the pitch of those vowels is utterly, it's a matter of two things, how well I'm shaping, but also what vowel I'm going for and what color of vowel. Like there's more than one E, there's more than one A, and an A, A particularly as, so I could do a brighter A or a warmer A. I was doing a classical set. Um, 
But each of those vowels is made of two vowel-like tone colors being blended together. A higher one, which is the one you're hearing the pitch of, and a lower one, which, which is sort of warming and complementing the thing. So once I've got those pitches, I know I've got a really good shape for that vowel for, for most of the pitches of my range because I don't have to actively modify a vowel unless I'm singing above the first formant or first resonance location of that vowel. And all first formant locations are pretty much lie in the treble clef somewhere from the bottom, possibly just below the bottom of the treble clef to the top of the treble clef. Well, for most of the top, for most of my vowels, I don't sing that high. My E vowel and my U vowel live at the bottom of the treble clef or just below, at the bottom or just below. I sing that high, so I actively modify those pretty soon. My A and O vowels are at my high C. I don't have to modify those if I don't want to. I can, there are options. Treble voices, on the other hand, sing through the treble clef and above it all day long. They, they do active vowel modification for every vowel eventually, depending on when they are above that, that first resonance of the vowel. So if I do, that's the target. I'm gonna keep that target because the, the identity of an E vowel is at that pitch. But I'm gonna open my mouth to raise the first resonance and the first formant for a higher pitch. It's raising the first format, but the second format, the pitch you were hearing, stayed the same. So it will sound like an E vowel on a high note if I do that. And as long as it feels good to do, that I'm not doing anything that feels too effortful, uh, that will give me a good E shape for a high note. So that acoustic pedagogy and the feel good eliminates the tension, eliminates the false articulator tension. If there was tongue tension or jaw tension, use a use a, a soothing, self-soothing affect. You could use empathy. Opening the mouth as wide as you comfortably can, but targeting. Now here's curious. I'll show you what that sounds like at speech level pitch, and you'll it will explain why no, people struggle to find that shape. E E. What? That's an E vowel. Yeah, for a high note. E E E. It's E up high with warmth. Because if I go E, that won't work up high. E E E E E E E E. So I can use the Keldorskota Whisper to find active vowel modifications for any vowel. And, and, and I, I find that most comfortable way to make that target pitch with expression, and I'm ready to go for a high pitch. And then it's just a question of how much of that modification do I need per pitch? You know, how much opening do I need, which the higher you go above the, the first resonance, the more you have to open your mouth to, to raise the first format up to create, if you want warmth to your tone. If you want any kind of warm warmth, because the, the first format is basically playing an U or an O vowel color. And U and O are warming, rounding vowel colors. So if I were to see you working in the studio with a singer, would you apply that chiaroscuro whisper as a way that's quite understandable and uh, easy for them to experience for themselves? Is that what we would see you do? 
yes. And uh, another thing is, aside from, you know, playing this instrument to do feelings, we are in that class of beings on the planet, that class of creatures called vocal learners. This is from brain uh, neurological study that people are doing. Heidi Moss has done some great work on that. And vocal learners, there, there's a, there's only eight species so far, I think, that they've identified. It's a really odd list. Whales, dolphins. We're the only primates that are vocal learners. Songbirds, hummingbirds, bats, of all things. Vocal learners don't just make sounds they were pre-programmed to make. A lot of creatures make sounds, noises, and they just do the same set of sounds over and over again that they were sort of genetically programmed to make. Vocal learners learn new sounds from their environment. How do vocal learners do that? Imitation and pleasurable exploration in little little short units. And then they, once they learn something, they can rearrange the order and, and put them together in complicated patterns, hence language or song, bird song or you know, it can get very complicated once it's just like it's just like improv. Improv is not done out of you know the you know out of nowhere. Improv is rearranging pre-learned patterns that you pick up from your environment. You learn scale patterns, you learn you know riff forms, and then you're able to creatively re reshape them. Anyway, point being in the lesson, I just do this and have tutors imitate it. I tell them it's going to feel like this. Make sure it feels good. Make sure it's whatever you're doing with your tongue. It feels easy in your neck. Open your mouth more. Use expression. Match that pitch. You're, you're good to go. Now, I have to, I have to give you this qualifier. The Kyoto Whisper does take some messing with to master because your instinct will be to do the instinctive whisper, which is very mouthy. It's very, why would we do that instinctively? It's like the yell. The yell is also, and in, in the wild is, is mouthy. Yay! You know, it's, it's kind of bright to the front. By the way, I should mention that. Uh, it's completely universal to feel that bright is forward and dark is back. As far as I know, anybody I've ever asked feels it that way. I assume it's universal. I don't know about a scientific you know, double-blind, randomized study on that, but so far, that's my experience. I was talking to Wolfgang Zaus, the brilliant uh, overtone singer, about that once. I said, well, if, if dark is in the back, I think I sort of feel my, my lower first format in the back and my second, my brighter second format in my mouth. He said, I think I'm tuning them that way. He says, oh, no, it's just the opposite. I was depressed for two days. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes learning is painful. Yes. <laughs> I knew this man knew about where he was tuning his formants because you can't be an overtone singer if you don't know how to tune your formants very specifically. But I always had some questions about, I wonder why the Italians say the vowels are formed in the throat because most vowel identity comes from the second format. If I was feeling the second format out in the mouth, wouldn't they be tuned in the mouth and not the throat? No. Now, just to clarify, in some simplistic versions of acoustics, we used to think of the vocal tract as separate resonators that are coupled, that are, you know, I've got a, and then, then you would think, well, my first formant is here, my second formant is here, and so forth and so on. That's not true. A formant is a, a frequency of a sound wave that's echoing back and forth through the entire length of the vocal tract. 
Formants do not live in one place in the vocal tract. There's still some misconception about that out there. We used to think that. I used to think that. Okay. It's, it's a portion of a wavelength, a sound wavelength, that has an anti-node at one end and a node at the other end, which basically means if you see a graph, it's a high or a low peak at one end and a, an, an average at the other end. That happens at one-fourth of a full wavelength is two of those. Node, anti-node, node, anti-node, node. That's the full wavelength, because the full wavelength goes like that, right? And the upside down version of it's the, the opposite of that, sort of like a sort of like an infinity thing, but there's a node at each end. One fourth of a wavelength from an anti-node to a node will echo back and forth. That'll give you your first resonance and your first formant. Okay. So if if you were to say that to a child <laughs> I don't say this to a child. <laughs> but imagine I that I'm a child, Ken. I don't say any of this to a child. I explain this to teachers that want to go that deep. If right. they don't want to go that deep, I don't need to go there. Okay. They don't need to go there. So they how would you explain a formant to somebody who just wants kind of like to understand what a formant is, but doesn't want to go that deep? I would say sounds are more than a single frequency. Sounds are made up of a range of frequencies from low to high. When we have a timbre is made of which, which ones of those frequencies are stronger or weaker. So we have mountain peaks and valleys of, of sound frequencies. That lowest mountain peak is your first formant. So some low set of frequencies that your voice is boosting is your, and it's going to be warming and rounding and neutralizing. That second mountain, there's going to be a valley in between that and the next mountain peak. And in that valley, those frequencies are getting suppressed. And then the next mountain peak of, of frequencies that we're putting out is going to be your second resonance or your second formant. Most of your vowels are defined by that second mountain peak. It's, why, why is that? Because frequencies have a vowel-like tone color. Thank you, Ian Howell, for bringing that information in. And you, you, I can, I can do as a side thing, but spectral tone color, absolute spectral tone color, is easily proven by this. When you hear a siren, depending on how they've programmed a siren on an ambulance, they take a sine tone, which is a single frequency, and they sweep it up and down and up and down and up and down. We hear wee, 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 wee. Why do we hear vowels? It's just a frequency because frequencies have a vowel like tone color. All of our vowels, whatever the vowel is, you have to find the, the frequency that has that vowel's tone color and feature it with a resonance or a formant. We feature most of them with that second mountain peak, that second higher resonance of the vocal tract. Vocal tract has several of those resonances. The, the, you know, the output of the sound. So when we shape, we're, we're moving mountain peaks around. That's all we're doing. We're moving which, which frequencies we're going to feature in the radiated sound to create this vowel and this particular timbre. And you can do it with visuals too. Um, and you can do it with the mod, the synthesizer. You can demonstrate it. Oh, when it chooses that harmonic, that harmonic sounds more like that. I talk about the first two formats as being an under vowel and an over vowel. I made up those words. Why did I do that? To talk to children about this. Okay. I don't say children. To talk to regular folk about this. Why did I call it an under vowel? Well, it's lower under. And it sounds kind of like a vowel. Under vowel. Why over vowel? It's higher. And it sounds like a vowel. Vowel-like. One of those is the target color of the vowel you're going for in the word. 
usually it's the overball. Why? Because everything sounds like ooh up to C5, C above middle C, just sounds low dark and like. From C5 to C7, most of our vowel tone colors live. C5 to F5 is O. Above there, at the top, above the top of the treble clef is aw. At, at soprano high C is a warm ah sign tone. Then you go I. The next octave goes I. Ah, ah, a. And then the top octave of the piano is all E, and everything above that is E-like. So that second mountain peak is choosing which of those colors is, is this bottle I'm going for. What is the first format doing? It's providing a warming, rounding, ooh, oh color. So that it doesn't sound like E. It sounds like E. It has a warmth and a balance to it. So it doesn't sound like A, which is maybe only just mostly second format. It's A, A. It has warmth from that under vowel. We tend to hear the, I call the, the uh, whichever one isn't the target tone color, the target tone color of the vowel, I call it the complementary tone color. There's a target tone color that's the sound in the word because of the language. And then there's a complementary sound that sort of completes and rounds out and warms and to some extent neutralizes the target sound so that it's nice. It doesn't sound strained or shrill or pinched. So you have those two vowel tone colors and you can learn to, uh, and I play filtered counterscore whispers and play them separately so that you can hear what they sound like. Oh my gosh, yeah. You can train your brain to start hearing and feeling that more, you know, like for example, if I do, pretty much everybody's hearing, they're hearing the over vowel, why? It's the target one. Our, our brains have been trained to listen for language. So we're listening for that target vowel color. So we hear, I can speak it in a way that brings out the undervowel a little bit more. It's tricky. That's the undervowel. You can learn to hear a duet. You can learn to do that with the counterscore to whisper, and all of a sudden you've got skills in tuning vowels. Always use affect. Why? That's our deepest level programming for playing this thing. Affect and pleasurable ease, satisfyingly uh, expressed. These are separate from the pitch that you're going to be singing. That's the thing that's like, ah, you know. But if you do it enough, you get the feel of it that then you can go to sing and you can sing your or speak e a a a e a a a and you won't go e a a a e a a a and then you if you want for a different genre so you're doing pop certain you know some commercial music you can use affects that tend to be done there I, one of my I always use goofy affects just to play one of them is what I call the hell yeah damn right affect which is the That's a look you've seen, right? Mm, you're rocking it, Ken. That's a, notice I'm using the same pitches. If I want a brighter ah, uh, I could do a. 
And as long as it's pleasurable and easy in the neck, that will work. And so this is the stuff I do, this imitative stuff here. I don't have to tell them any of that, what I just explained about the overall, the underval, the target, and the complementary. I can just say, there's two vowel colors you're blending together. Here's what they sound like. Here's how you do them. You know, you can use imitation, pleasure. So we could we could do that ourselves and get the singer to, to imitate. And we could use the expression from the, the song that they're using or the uh, musical theatre context that might come with that song as a way in to express that vowel. Yes. And I would encourage when you're looking for best function, feel free to use whatever affect is helpful for the situation to find the efficiency. Even if it's the wrong affect for the, the song situation of the text, once you've learned the feel of efficiency, you will have more wiggle room to then uh, explore a wider range of emotions for that pitch and vowel and situation. But as a, as a way in, you know, there's emotion and affect is a wide range of options, some of which are on the fringes of extreme that might evoke tensions that you don't want, right? So you use whatever you can to get this, to express it pleasurably so that you can do it eight shows a week or whatever, you know, your gig is. Uh, so you find that pleasurable self, what is it? Self-organization, you know, efficiency, the pleasurable one. Then once you've got that, then you can play around with where to go with the the affect. It will, depending, it very often will work just fine with the affect of the text and the situation. But if it doesn't, feel free to explore other ones. And there's some, or caricatures. I use caricatures as well that people can relate to. Why again? Because imitation. So if you can do a caricature pleasurably, I'll give you an example. The very great one to access a headier registration if it's too chesty, uh, is the a toddler, I want my mommy. Okay. I want my mommy, I want my mommy, I want my mommy. I completely go into head voice just by doing that character voice. Very easy. I did, there was no flippage. <laughs> yeah, I want my mommy, I want my mommy. I can go right back down to there. I want my mommy. No laryngeal flippage. Uh, it's using expression, using a caricature of the, that we can relate to. If I want a buzzier one, I'll use toddler complaint, for example. I like to use childlike images. Why? They're not messed up yet, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and they do it. And why? They, they do emotions more than language almost, you know, which is programming. So toddler complaint is the toddler's not getting its way. Uh, uh, kind of buzzy. Uh, uh, that's not working. I'm going to try to make mommy feel sorry for me. So I'll go hi. Uh, uh, by the way, that was a passive migration <clears throat> from buzzy low to smooth high. Again, thank you, Ian Howell for pointing out auditory roughness, which is a scale, a gradated scale of buzziness from buzzy low, which just means high frequency content, high closely clustered frequency content, to smooth high, which means fewer harmonics separated apart from each other. It sounds like a smooth pitch. It doesn't sound as buzzy. 
Again, you don't have to know the acoustics underneath it. All you have to know is we're going to go from buzzy low through a sort of a sizzly middle to a smooth high. That's all you need to know. When you're doing that, the acoustics are taken care of. And that's going to happen on every vowel and every, you know, when I did the toddler complaint, by the way, not only did the buzziness migrate, the vowel migrated. Why? Vowel timbre migrates with pitch because when you change pitches, you're changing harmonic sets, which means you're changing your paint palette. Each of those harmonics has an absolute respectful tone color, a vowel-like tone color. Change pitches, you got a different set of tone colors. So when I do, uh, the toddler complaint, vowel migration goes from an A-like low to a kind of a nasalized A uh, to a nasalized I, a nasalized buzzy A uh, to a nasalized smooth I high through exactly the same shape. So it's not because I'm actively modifying. I'm not. I'm using the same shape, but I'm letting the affect migrate, and I'm letting the vowel migrate, and I'm letting the buzziness migrate. All of those things have to migrate. If I try to hold it the same, I'm going to be yelling, and it's going to be stringy. Announcement! Listeners, if you've been thinking about joining the BAST community by taking one of our courses, but you just don't know which is the best option for you, then why not book a free call with our very own Kimberly George, who has all the answers? Head over to basttraining.com forward slash book a call forward slash and click that big blue button to request your free Zoom chat. That's basttraining.com forward slash book a call forward slash and you can find that link in our show notes too. Now, where were we? There's a cool thing that's called transglottal pressure difference. Singing involves pressure, flow, and resistance. This is a resistor. That vibrator is a resistor to the flow and pressure, right? And they're they're in a little equation. Pressure divided by flow equals resistance. It's, you know, if you get into the math of it. Well, we want the resistance, which is how strongly the glottis has to close to achieve closure, to be really comfortable. We don't want too much glottal resistance. Usually we say we don't want too much pressure. Well, it's more complicated than that because if you're doing a really powerful sound, it requires a higher pressure. So how do I, when you raise the pressure, typically the glottal resistance has to increase to achieve closure. How do I fix that? I have to be able to raise the effective pressure in my vocal tract to come close to matching that higher pressure in my lungs. How do you do that? Acoustic vocal pedagogy. There are acoustic shapes you can make that give a beneficial feedback where a sound wave pressure wave arrives at the opening glottis right as the pressure from below is coming out and pushes back on it a little bit, which keeps that transglottal pressure difference, which is just the difference in the pressure from below the glottis to above the glottis, comfortably small. When that pressure is too great, the glottis has to squeeze harder, which means the tissues are going to smack too hard and start injuring each other hundreds of times a second, right? So the really the, the, the secret to vocal health is a comfortably small transglottal pressure difference. And how do we do that? Good acoustic tuning. 
And if you do the acoustic tuning well, you can make very powerful sounds and you, you, you're, your glottis can't feel the difference between those and soft sounds at the same transglottal pressure difference. It feels the same. A, a powerful sound with a very high pressure here, if, I, if I've generated enough back pressure, it feels the same. I use these funny numbers. Like if, if say if I'm going from a, we'll just use funny numbers. Say atmospheric pressure is zero. That's a lie, but it feels like it to us. So if I'm generating a five and I go from five to zero, that's a five. Transglottal pressure difference of five. What if I'm singing some really loud power power note and I need a 30 here? If I can generate a 25 back pressure, 30 to 25 is a five. My glottis can't tell the difference. The sensation, and how do, what do I mean by my glottis? The sensation of effort in my neck feels like a five. I can do five all week long. No problem. And the glottis won't know the difference if I've effectively tuned the resonator to build up that back pressure to keep the transglottal pressure difference at a five. I'm happy. My voice is happy. Now, singer doesn't need to know that. They just need to know what's a good shape so that it feels good in my neck. That's all they need to know. That's the procedural knowledge. The teacher just... What's the formula to find out what the best back pressure would be to match what's coming up well, from below? It's really, I don't know that you could, there is a formula, a physics formula probably, but I don't, I don't bother with that. I just do a calculus, go to whisper till I find a good shape for the vowel. I do that and I'm good to go. I know if I do e, if I say e, e, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a, a growing transglottal pressure difference. How do I know when I've got a good transglottal pressure difference? Ease and pleasure in the neck, effort feels effortless in the neck, and if it's increasing, if that transglottal pressure, I know I'm working harder in the neck. I'm recruiting other muscles to help achieve closure with those higher pressures and not enough back pressure. So I've learned that if I do if I find that shape using the counter to whisper, I've got effective back pressure and I can do you know, feels very easy. Uh, I could do it in a, a, a mix too, but I'm, I'm a little old. I don't do the, I don't do the loud sounds too much anymore, but I could, I mean, my singers do. Yeah, you can use the Caldoscope Whisper to find a better tuning that'll give you effective, effective back pressure. It typically, I will tell you physiologically, it usually involves some beneficial narrowing downstream from the vocal folds. The narrowing can be here, or the narrowing can be here, where that tongue dorsum gets really close to the palate in the back. That's what I'm doing on the E. And that's, that's helping to give me a beneficial back pressure, iterative back pressure. E. If I do e, e, e in my mouth, front of my mouth, e, that's going to hurt. If I do e, it's not. Notice when you do those, you'll hear more of the color of the complementary vowel mixed with the target vowel. Example, e is the target vowel, and that's my e. Literally, u or o is the under vowel, but we don't hear u and o with an e. We hear u and o mixed with the e, so we hear this kind of weird tonguey e. E, e. Instead of E, we hear E down at speech range. But up high, it's perfectly fine. E, 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 e. 
And there's several other aspects to that somatosensorially. Feels like the E is above and below my mouth. If it's just in my mouth, I'm yelling. If it's above my mouth and below it, it feels easier in my neck. E. It's supposed to E. E. And there's also postural aspects. All the stuff we always teach, right? You know, reach up and forward. The head can go back. Why? No mammals on the planet chin tuck for high pitch and loud sounds, except for some few misguided singers. <laughs> it's not a good move. Every mammal in nature goes that way for high, loud pitch. It's way easier on the throat. Yee-haw! We don't go yee-haw. Yee when we laugh, you throw your head back. <laughs> Notice we we notate ha ha ha, but we're not doing ha ha ha. We're doing the under vowel. Ha ha ha. Uh uh. Ha ha ha. No. A lot of under vowel than that. Even though it's shaped like an ah, but there's under vowel mixed in with more and more under vowel with it. In general, vowels migrate toward the complementary vowel with ascent. Next time I'm having the best time of my life, I'm going to be like laughing, thinking under vowel, under vowel. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Yeah, uh, uh. It's kind of an uh, uh mixed in with the ah. Uh. It's like ah uh shape, but a lot of uh, uh color mixed in with it. Rather than insisting on ha, 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 which will raise your legs and c compress things, uh, 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 will leave things comfortable. You'll have a nice transplantal pressure difference. <laughs> mm, amazing. Again, go to nature. I was wondering if you could give us a short definition for some of the other terminology that we might come across. You've mentioned quite a few. Feed me a term. Resonance. How do you define resonance? So resonance uh, is when, when the system, the tubing of the system, responds beneficially to the input and maximizes it as, as output, right? Um, and, and literally it's the system responds to the input vibration in a, in a beneficial, positive, favorable way so that it's, it's transferring sound energy very easily to the outside world. Um, I mean, this is a simplistic look at it, but you know, those mountain peaks are resonances of the vocal tract. Those, those particular frequency peaks really respond to whatever frequencies I'm putting in and and boost them so that they're they're echoing back and forth. By the way, this is really mind blowing. According to Ingo Tietze and also Brad's story, both of them wonderful voice researchers, the uh, energy that we put into the system, most of that acoustic energy stays in the vocal tract. The vocal tract sound level intensity level is thirty decibels higher than what comes out the mouth. Decibels are logarithmic scales. What does that mean? 30 decibels is 10 to the power of 3. That's 10 times 10 times 10. That means the acoustic energy in the vocal tract is 1,000 times more intense than what makes it out of your mouth. What? Now, that's very powerful. 
That is why acoustic pedagogy is so powerful. That power going back and forth in there is either going to fight or assist the vocal flow vibration. If it's well-tuned, it can maximize your power immensely. If it's poorly tuned, it's going to fight the vibrator and cause instability and flippage and, and muscular effort to try to stay. It's going to cause instability that you then respond to with, you know, clutching tension. But if it's well-tuned, the muscles can just do just what they need to do. Nice transplatal pressure difference. Powerful sound coming out of the mouth because of all of that interactive feedback going on. Uh, anyway, so resonances, tuning the resonance as well, will help that interactive feedback so that you can make powerful sounds and feel completely easy in your neck. Harmonics. What are Harmon harmonics? Harmonics are individual frequencies, sound frequencies, that are whole integer, whole integer multiples of the fundamental frequency that, that you're singing. So if I'm singing a hundred times, if my vocal folds are vibrating, which is how, how many times a second your vocal folds are opening and closing, that's the fundamental frequency. If it's a hundred times a second, which would be bass low G about, there will be another frequency that's twice that, 200 times a second, and another one 300 times a second and 400 times a second. That's the harmonic series. And how do, why is that the case? It's because when you insert a sound wave into a system and sounds are about you, you uh, a single pulse uh, opening and closing of the vocal folds actually generates a noise. It's a noise that potentially has every possible frequency in it. But when you periodically reiterate it, when you do a, a regular repetition, which is periodic reiterations or regular repetition, you're reiterating that noise 100 times a second. That means that that frequency at 100 times a second is going to get reinforced with every one of those pulses. So you start hearing that frequency. And then what what is the next higher frequency that will be in sync with that 100 times a second? They'll have a common denominator with it, 200 times a second. So every every time something vibrating 200 times a second comes back every second return, it will be in sync with that 100 times a second. So now you're going to get 100 times a second and 200 times. I've got two frequencies that are getting boosted, right? What's the next one? 300 times a second and so forth. But but because the 200 times a second only comes back every every second swing, is it in sync? It's going to be a little bit weaker than the first one. 300 times every third swing back, it's going to be a little bit weaker. So you get this sort of spectral slope, this gradual weakening of those higher frequencies, but you get a set of harmonic frequencies being reinforced. It's more complicated than I'm saying right now, but that's basically the idea. The, each each plot of pulse that inputs a noise is immediately shaped by the resonances of the vocal tract. The, the peaks and valleys are there in that single pulse, but it's a peaks and valleys of noise. It's like every frequency just painting in that the peaks and valleys. But when you periodically reiterate it, the only frequencies out of all that noise, that those, those infinite frequencies of the noise, the only ones that build up energy are the harmonic frequencies because they're the ones that are in sync with the next glottal pulse and the next glottal pulse. And this happens so fast. If you're vibrating at a low G 100 times a second, you're vibrating, you know, G above that 200 times a second. Well, it doesn't take that many iterations for it to build up uh, a resonated sound that's emitting out the, out the mouth that's going to have 
reinforced frequencies and other frequencies that are suppressed because they're not in sync with either one of those mountain peaks or with the iterations from the vocal track. It's a very interactive system, but uh, that's how it works. We don't need to know all of that. We need to know what it sounds like and feels like for the student. And the teacher can just decide how far they want to understand. I will say this, the more you understand about it, the more of a solid basis you have for creative solutions. And I'm still realizing creative solutions. You know, I, I still have lessons where I say, well, I've never said this before, but try this. We all have those moments. But the more you know what's under the hood, the more confident you are about the possible creative sensorial applications that you're suggesting. I know you're going to hear a whole lot more E in your E up high. Let it sound like E to you. E. Don't go E. That will cause strain. You're going to need more E in your high E or whatever. You're going to need a whole lot of uh, uh in your ah. Uh. Don't go ah. Go ah. 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 It's going to migrate. Let it in such a way that it feels expressive and really comfortable in your neck. And that's kind of regardless of style. We can apply that in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. For style, almost, and I have to admit, I'm primarily a classical specialist, but I've taught some musical theater. I have not done really any distortion training. That's a real specialty that some CCM styles use. Um, but I'm interested in understanding how all of it's done. <clears throat> I'm just not specialist in those literatures. I largely use affect or caricature per genre, like that hell yeah damn right thing, or the, the eye squint nose scrunch that kind of goes along with the hell yeah damn right. That's, that's ubiquitous in a lot of pop styles. And it isn't that this is fixing it. This is just going along with an internal expression that happens to activate that at the face. The primary thing is the internal thing. When you do that, the tongue dorsum tends to be very high, especially in, in people that do that tend to back up the face rather than reach forward with the face, which would tend to raise the larynx and cause more strain. And they tend to head back, you know, all of that positions the articulator in a beneficial translateral pressure difference place for those kinds of sounds. What about form and tracking? What does that mean? The, the idea there, and I have opinions about that. I understand it, and I, it makes sense for certain things. It basically means one of those mountain peaks, typically, not always, but typically that first mountain peak, that lowest mountain peak, needs to be featuring a harmonic uh, in order to have power. Because if you, if you have a mountain peak and there's no acoustic energy in the peak, the energy to either side of it is going to be a weaker sound. So formant tracking, it really should be called resonance tracking because the format is the, a resonance is the, is the, the potential uh, sympathetic vibration of a frequency peak in the vocal tract with an input. The format is the realized potential that you hear on the outside. If there is a harmonic or a frequency near the peak of, an, of a resonance of the vocal track, you'll hear that frequency as a, a formant on the outside. 
if I if I change pitch, say I'm a mountain piece, say this is my mountain piece, I'll do it this way. This is the pitch I'm singing. This is a set of harmonics. This is a resonance. It would be a, a mountain peak like that going vertically. If there's a second harmonic right in that mountain peak, that, that second harmonic is really going to be boosted. As I go higher, now it's now it's fallen is falling into the valley. You know, it's like if, if this is a mountain peak, that harmonic went up to the peak and now it's falling into a valley in between the two peaks and it's going to go to another peak later. That's what's happening there. Tracking would be, oh, I like that. I'm going to move my resonance with that rising pitch to keep tracking that harmonic. This is yelling. Second harmonic boosted and tracking it up higher. How do we track with the first resonance that second harmonic? By making the resonator more and more divergent and more wide open and shortening the tube. Right? Belting is a very skillful, clever imitation of yelling. It's not yelling. It's a clever imitation of yelling. Why would we want to do that? Because yelling is very emotional. And belting is about high drama, right? So we want to figure out how can we make a sound that can pass for that, but is but has a comfortable transcloud pressure difference, right? That feels good in the neck. So we've learned acoustical means to sort of imitate that bright, you know, sound that don't require the the strong transglottal pressure difference of a raw yell, which will make you hoarse and you can't do eight shows a week. So you could use the chiaroscuro whisper to find a good belt shape too? Yep. Just use the hell yeah damn right shape. Yeah. <laughs> it's a caricature shape that still tunes the resonator right and maybe choose slightly brighter versions of the vowel that you're trying to chiaroscuro to whisper, but it's still got to feel completely easy in the neck. I could do a, I could do a, instead of an, choose a slightly brighter vowel, but don't do, when you do a counterscore to whisper this, the sensation of the turbulence, the noisiness is more pharyngeal. It's less oral, it's less out there in your mouth. Now realize your pharynx is not that far back. It's from your sternal notch to about there. It isn't. That's raising the larynx and constricting. I could do a half step higher. So you can choose. You can choose brighter vowel targets as long as you're getting them with that pharyngeally felt turbulence rather than a mouthy spread turbulence. It'll sound brighter. And I can use a brighter. Ah, oh, I can choose brighter vowel col uh, colors. But I've still got to feel. The Kairoskoda Whisper must feel soothing to do in the neck. Ah. And if you do that, typically the tongue dorsum will be higher than it would be on a, uh, a yelled You know, your, your ah will be a little bit towards an ah. And so forth. Oh, oh. Dear listeners, we are so grateful that you tune in each week to geek out with us. It's our mission here at the Singing Teachers Talk podcast to invite you into informed discussions across a variety of topics to inspire your own teaching and to support your career in voice. 
Now I've got a big favour to ask of you, pretty pretty please, with a cherry on top, can we steal a bit of your time in asking for a review, which will not only help us to improve the platform, but will also help spread the word to others who are looking for a community like the one you've helped us build here. You can leave your review over at Apple Podcasts, by leaving a comment beneath your favourite episode on our YouTube channel, or by emailing me directly with your testimonial at alexa at basstraining.com. If you've been enjoying this podcast, we'd love to hear about it. And thank you for all your support, Bass Brigade. Bastions? The Talkers. Yeah, I'll work on the name. Oh, oh. And what's your opinion on programs like Voce Vista? Do you think that they can be useful or are there other programs or, and, or tools that you would say are good for us to understand this? If somebody, again, I use that mostly for pedagogy classes and teaching teachers, if they want to learn more about what the, what's under the hood. Uh, I had Voce Vista, I had real-time spectrography. First, it was just a computer program I had, and then I switched over to Voce Vista Video Pro in the early 2000s. But from 93 till then, the first 10 years, I had an, a big computer program, $16,000 program that I got. Uh, it was the Kalimetrics 5500 sonograph anyway uh but uh, but it eventually died i went through three different monitors in that 10 year and eventually i switched over to uh which i used to video pro which is probably the best program available but there are other programs that are fine that work fine for for real-time spectrography but i always say if you can't teach a good voice lesson without that you can't teach a good voice lesson with it the things that you can monitor easily with spect real-time spectrography meaning like it's you see it as you're doing it you see the the, the analysis are uh, important things but but they can be monitored without it and a lot of the crucial stuff is really hard to read with immediate uh, skill from a spectrograph um, most of the acoustic register changes that I teach are, are a little bit hard to read quickly while you're singing. So my ear and eye and the student's sensations way better than the spectrography. With the one, there's the things that are really easy to see, vibrato. The immediacy, the, the consistency, the continuousness of the vibrato, you can see it right away. But you can't necessarily tell, you say it looks really regular, really consistent, but it could be wide and slow. And if you aren't hearing it, you, it looks fine. Then you hear it, oh, uh, it's very regular, very, you know, but that's the bad vibrato for most genres, right? But your ear can tell immediately, does it have vibrant singleness of pitch, if that's what you're going for. Vibrant singleness of pitch means it's very regular and steady, but my perception of pitch, and pitch is perception. Frequency is science, pitch is perception. I just hear a steady pitch that somehow sounds more interesting. It sounds spinning or sparkling or something, but I don't hear the pitch waggling or beating. I hear just a good pitch. That's vibrant singleness of pitch. You can't necessarily tell from the spectrograph whether you've got just a regular wobble or a vibrant singleness of pitch, but you can hear it immediately. All right. So Another thing that, but, but the acoustic register that's the most obvious with spectrography is what I call whoop timbre, where you're matching the first, the fundamental frequency with the first resonance, because that, that lowest harmonic gets so hot on the spectrograph with the colors, whatever color 
you know, you're using, you see it immediately. It's way stronger than all the other harmonics. You're in whoop timbre. But, but the, all the other transitions of range for lower voices, it's tricky to see because you've got two mountain peaks and they're featuring whatever harmonics are near them, regardless of the acoustic register. It's really tricky to see those. So, um, you know, I've learned a lot from spectrography. There are people that study the signals that want to understand the science. And there are some things that are helpful with it. You can actually do the counterscore to whisper very usefully with it. You can see exactly where the peaks of the noise are when you do the counterscore to whisper. And, or you can you can play a pitch on the piano. You can play this. And you'll see a, a single line, or you'll see a line where that is. And then you try to make your whisper peak, your mountain peak, your second mountain peak, match that same thing. You could do that with it. That's been done usefully. So it has certain uses, but it's not, you know, a be all and end all. It's got limits as well. Ultimately, your eye and your ear and your brain and your sense of feel are more useful than the spectrograph. But the spectrograph can be useful within certain contexts. I don't, you know, I teach online lessons now. I don't use it at all. But now I know, I know all that other stuff. I don't need to, you know, I'm informed. So I know what the targets are without the spectrography. What don't we yet understand about vocal acoustics? Now, I'm using the royal we there because <laughs> I still feel right. like there's a lot that I need to refine. <laughs> well, there's always more to learn. Um, I'll give you an example. When a harmonic moves through a resonance, particularly when a harmonic moves through the first resonance of the vocal tract, on the high side, uh, we hear a stronger shift towards more complementary vowel tone color. I don't know exactly why that is. You know, I would assume as a harmonic moves into the peak, you're going to have the, its strongest contribution. And then as it moves into the valley in between the first mountain peak and the second, its its contribution should be diminishing. But stuff is happening higher too with other harmonics through the second mountain peak and so forth and so on. Exactly why? Yeah, I know that it does. That's all I need to know procedurally. I know my ah uh, on a, 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 a turned over ah uh, vowel is going to sound have a lot more uh, uh in it. And I know, I know why that I know it happened because this first harmonic, the second harmonic went through the first form and it's on the high side of it. But I don't know perceptually why the color change, you know, in more detail. I don't know why. Do I need to know? Not really. I can teach well without knowing that, but it's curious. Hmm. Hmm. I used to think it's because now. Now, the, as that one goes through, now the first harmonic, the pitcher singing, is getting closer to the peak. And as that first harmonic gets in that thing, now I know why whoop timbre sounds like there's so much ooh-oh in it. Because that first harmonic in that first resonance is going to sound like an ooh or an o. Do you know what a theremin is? It's a, an electronic instrument that was created in the 1800s, I think, that plays a sign tone when you put your, it's an electronic post in this thing, which you oh, put your hand near oh, it, yeah. this whirring, whirling 
fundamental yeah. frequency. I think Sheldon Cooper plays it on the Big Bang yeah. Theory. Very funky <laughs> instruments. It's kind of fun. You can play with them. When you go into whoop timbre, it's almost like your voice starts to sound a little bit more theremin-like. You start yeah. hearing whirring ooh-oh. So I'm going to play this, and this is five. This is a Voce Vista Video Pro. You see that this is the fundamental frequency. You see that really reddish-yellow bottom frequency there in this signal? That's the fundamental frequency. It's very hot. So this person, whenever that gets hotter, this person is in whoop timbre. So you sing in a musical theater piece, or yeah, or uh, Victoria Clark, Ricky and Gordon piece. And I, I filter it so that I separate them out so that you can hear them individually. I put them back together again. Let me know if you can hear this when I start playing it. Okay. There's that ooh popping in. You hear that fundamental woo 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 at the bottom? Now the second pass through, I, I filter out the higher sounds so that you hear the whoop even more. I want you to hang on to that part of the sound when I put the others back in. That's that's characteristic of whoop timbre, and that you can see very clearly on Mocha Vista Video Pro. Now I put the frequencies back in again, the higher frequencies. Are you hearing that? It's an ear training exercise for your brain. Now I'm going to reduce the whoop out. So you'll just hear the higher frequencies mostly. I'll take it out completely here in a moment. That's just the higher part of its timbre. No fundamental. One last time with it all together again. So you see, there's an example of using, you can you can see with Virtu Vista. And then, but the, the main thing was using it to train your ear to be able to separate out the piece you wanted to make sure was there, that fundamental frequency. And in soprano head voice in classical land, we really want that whoop timbre in there. We want the vowel too. The vowel part is the higher part, mostly, unless you're singing an urano that most of the vowel identity comes from the higher frequencies. But we want that domey, whirly, 
warm, you know, lovely whoop, whoop frequency there. If we were going to go and do our bit now after this interview, uh, pick out all the books and your books included in that as well and other people's work, what sort of resources would you point us in the direction of? I can speak mostly to my own resources. There's My website is kinbozeman.com, but on the home page of that is my Lawrence University faculty link, which has some more things on it. Um, but it's, it's too hard to remember that. KenBozeman.com is pretty easy to remember. But it's the very homepage, you'll see my lawrenceurance.edu website. Both of them have a lot of the same resources, but the Lawrence one has a few more. And there's pedagogic resources there, a lot of free downloadable stuff. At the Lawrence one, I have a lot of recordings, both of my own singing when I sang. If you want to see you know, if I, what I sounded like, you can do that. But also of lectures I've given. And whenever I do something like this, an interview or a lecture, after the organization has used it, if they give me permission, I post it on my website for free so people can just go there and watch and listen um, to, you know, to see if they want to go further. Then I've got two books, um, Practical Vocal Acoustics, now by Roman and Littlefield. Yep, here and, you go. Right. And uh, Kinesthetic Voice Pedagogy 2. You want the one that has the, the the number two, which is the second edition, which is I fixed some things from the first one and is twice as long as the first one. And it's with uh, Scott McCoy's Inside View Press. It goes further into applications. Both of them do, you know, the first one lays the groundwork, the, you know, the principles underneath. The second one lays a little bit more groundwork and goes even further into applications. Both of them go into applications. And all that stuff on my website that's downloadable and free talks about the same stuff with sound samples. You know, you could you could just watch lectures on the website and decide whether you wanted to go further with any of the reading, in which case then you could. And there are e-books e available for people internationally if they don't want to deal with the ridiculous shipping charges to get books all around the world. You could just do an e-book version. But um, I teach courses. Um, I teach a course for Debbie. I mean, I teach a acoustics part of Debbie Winter's uh, course in the UK. I I have a course with a NYSTA program in New York City, the acoustics course for them. It's a 10-hour course. I, I teach courses in person. Um, and I do drop-in lectures for universities. Generally, if they're already using some of my materials, I prefer that because otherwise I just confuse people by dropping this information when they don't have any background in it. It's like, well, this is too hard. But if they sort of waded into it, then th then they can ask me what their questions are and it's much easier for them to process this information. But there are other people. Ian Howell's work is great. He's going to have some books coming out soon uh, that are really go do a deep dive. But he, But all of us are trying to lay the foundation and then make the connections to applications. We do a week-long uh, course now hosted at uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the University of Michigan every summer uh, in acoustic pedagogy. Ian, Chadley Ballantyne, and I are the primary uh, faculty, but we have a number of great adjunct faculty that also do specialty topics. This year, that's July 28th to August 3rd, I think, are the dates. Have you ever thought about uh, adding to your repertoire, like, live-in 
live uh, where you can come and live with me there and, you go. Uh, <laughs> come and well, tell me everything actually actually i i i love to do that i will tell you this my own the two sabbaticals i took and i had a 43-year career at lawrence and i only ever took two single term you know 10-week sabbaticals and each time i went and apprenticed myself to a teacher i wanted to learn from and i sat in and watched them teach and i would try things and go off and work and they come, come back and teach and even though that's an old model a learning model i still feel like there's a lot of value there none you know very few of us had the luxury of being able to do that but you could certainly do intensives like that i've actually had a few times people come here and stay in the guest room and you know take lessons for a week and um but in, in, in these workshops we do demonstration lessons you know when we when i did it you know and and it's tricky because you, you you know if i'm working with new people it takes a little takes a minute for them to get on board with what we're trying to the point that it's that an observer can really, oh, I see what you're doing. I'm trying to collect when students will let me more and more examples and I'll play examples. But usually I'm, I'm, I'm playing after I've gotten them there. And you almost need to see how the sausage is made. <laughs> you know, you, you almost need to see the struggling process to go from where they started to where they ended up to know how to apply it. So there you need a little bit of time you need to see me start with someone and then fumble around to find the best avenue in for them and get them to the product. But it does help a lot to know what the output target goals are. Once and that that can be delivered pretty quickly. Um, but it, it, I will say this for the teachers, ideally, they need to have experienced it themselves. So most I teach a lot of teachers now, so they Oh, okay. And then they, they, they have the aha moments. Oh, yeah. And you know, this is very similar to something somebody else said, blah, 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 back when. Now I get that. Now, I, you know. Um, yeah. And I, I've, I've got one uh, person that said she wanted to study with me, and she's a mostly CCM musical theater teacher out in LA. I thought she was going to take the lessons, and she took a few, but she started instead paying for the lessons, just bringing her students in and making me teach them. And while she watched, okay, and I said, well, you know, teaching some high school student who just got cast in a musical theater role, and he's never had a voice lesson in his life, and now fix him so they can do this role. And I'm going, oh, this wasn't exactly my personal history, all right? No I taught college, college voice majors. But she made me figure out how to do that for her, and she, and she swore by that it was really helping. And she would then take on board the ideas herself. So again, that's similar watching someone that has this worked out over time do it uh, in, in other students or in themselves is probably the most effective way to get it learned. But it doesn't hurt to start with just learning the targets, learning the why, what the targets are, why they have to be that. Oh, okay. And learning enough about the why so that you can confidently go after the targets. Well, what I'm really hearing, Ken, is that you're inviting me to come stay with you and you, you and Joanne, your wife, there for, you for go. a couple I of weeks. Clear I always have to clear it with her because she, she being the host, feels like she absorbs most of the effort of having guests. But yeah. 
I'll help around. I'll do some chores. There you go. There you go. I'm fine with the washing up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, Ken, thank you so much for spending some time with us and and to help us really understand this minefield of a topic because it can really be a bit overwhelming to start with. So thank you very much, Ken. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure to do it. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.